This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Well, I think I've already greeted you twice, but it's in my notes, so should I do it again? What do you think? Um, <laughs> again, we're, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad to be here. My name is Aaron Bjorklund. I don't know if I said that earlier. I'm the worship pastor here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, um, uh, then I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm oftentimes on stage here when people show up, and I'm on stage when people leave, and so I don't get to meet all of you. So, um, But here are the most important statistics about me, so you can get to know me a little bit better before I share um, Ryan will be back next week, so you'll get the good stuff then. But um, uh, The most important things to know about me are my, I'm married to my beautiful wife, Allison. We've been married nine years as of this month. Um, and we have two, two little girls, uh, six-year-old Reese and two-year-old Piper. So if I stumble over my words, I have the parent of young children, lack of sleep, trump card, what I just throw that out there and... We can just say it's all about Jesus and close in prayer. Um, the most important thing to know about me is that I'm redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and I'm his. So, let's dive in. If you're here today and you wouldn't really call yourself a church person, maybe you... Maybe someone dragged you here today. Maybe someone bribed you with a free lunch after the service. I don't know how you got here if you're not really a normal attender of church, but you're here. Then you came on a good Sunday. Perhaps maybe uh, you're a different kind of person. Maybe you grew up in the church and you had a bad situation there and a bad experience there. And um, you don't really buy into all this Christian stuff. Um. Again, you came on a good Sunday. Because maybe one of the biggest issues you have with the church and with Christians is the fact that there seems to be a gap, a gap between what you've heard about Jesus and what you see in the church. Again, you came on a good week because I, I hope to explain some of what's going on in that gap. And I'm not really talking to you directly, but you can kind of listen in, get a backstage pass into this Christian world that many of us live in. If you are a Christian, and I know most of you are, I suspect that one of the biggest barriers to your faith journey is the same thing. So you non-church people, it might surprise you that the, the things that bother you the most about church and about Christians are probably the same things that bother Christians about the church and Christians <laughs> And so as I, as I address those things, we're all in the same boat. We can all look for answers together. Here's the bottom line. Anyone who's ever heard of Jesus begins to formulate a picture in their mind of what they think a good Christian is supposed to look like. The only people who don't have a formulation of what a good Christian is supposed to be like is someone who's never even heard of Jesus, never heard about what he was like, or never under, heard or understood Christianity. But if you have heard about Jesus, you begin to formulate what that, that picture looks like. And, I, um, and here's where it gets sticky. Where it gets sticky is the fact that there seems to be this tr- discrepancy sometimes between Jesus' followers and Jesus. Before you think I'm just pointing fingers at Christians here today, 
let me tell you the most concerning thing about this for me. I don't live up to the standard that I have in my head of what a Christian is supposed to look like. In fact, maybe you're a Christian today and you're like me. One of the biggest challenges to my Christian faith is the gap between what I think I'm supposed to look like as a believer and what I feel like I actually am. I have this picture in my mind of what a a Christian is supposed to look like, how I'm supposed to conduct myself, how I'm supposed to manage my funds, how I'm supposed to love my wife and care for my children and sacrifice for others around me, how I'm supposed to spend my time and my energy, and there's this gap, and that gap is the biggest threat to my faith day in and day out. How come... I believe in a God who transforms lives, and I'm not so sure that works for me all the time. Now, before you panic, the worship pastor doesn't believe in Jesus anymore. His faith's on the rocks. Let me reassure you, it's not. There are so many good reasons why I still believe. Some of those reasons are in this room right now. And some of those reasons, some of the reasons I still believe that Christ is who he said he was and that he did what he said he did for me is because of the lives of people who've gone before us. People like Dr. Lee and Mrs. Ida Lovegren, who served as missionaries in China for 18 years until the mid-1930s, when health issues required that they return to the U.S. And then World War II kicked off and Uh, Dr. Lovegren served as a major in the Army Air Corps as a translator. He was stationed in Chengdu, China. During that time, Dr. Lovegren became aware and made contact among among an unreached people group called the Nosu people in western China. After the war, the Lovegrens were appointed to Conservative Baptist Foreign Mission Society. And in 1947... They served as the senior missionary leaders of a team of 17 people who went to serve among the Nosu people. Not long after they arrived, the the communist regime started to to take control and have a campaign to, to get in power. And before the team had a chance to fully regroup and and get ready to exit the country. Dr. Lovegren was imprisoned in 1951 on charges of being a spy. After four and a half years in prison, Dr. Lovegren was released on September 19th, 1955 on his 67th birthday. While he was in prison, one of his cellmates asked him, Dr. Lovegren, was it worth it? Was it worth it that you stayed so long in China? To which he he wrote this in a response, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to read a selection of it. Was it worth it, did you ask me? Was it worth the risk we took when the nation round us tottered and the land's foundation shook? It was worth it. We were given two more years in which to preach, two more years in which to witness, two more years in which to teach. It was worth it. Yes, it was worth it. When we think of our great goal and remember the great value Jesus placed on every soul. 
It was worth it. We were given strength sufficient for each task. And our master blessed our witness. What more could a servant ask? It was worth it. Yes, twas worth it. It was worth it all and more. And our God then ruled our futures. And he rules it evermore. I'll give you one more reason why it was worth it. A reason that Dr. Lovegren never knew about. Years later, a young man at South Fellowship Church would hear about the work that Dr. Lovegren had started among the Nosu people. And his heart would be stirred so much that he, became, he would go as a missionary to continue that work. After serving among the Nosu for a while, a missionary from South would meet a young Nosu Christian woman, a, a member of a heritage that was passed down from Dr. Lovegren and his wife's work. They would fall in love, they would get married, and she would later become an appointed missionary with the same mission agency and be sent back with her husband to serve among the Nosu. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? That God would take his passion, his zeal, his commitment, his willingness to stay in prison, and he would turn that around and send one of that very people group to love and to serve and bring the good of the gospel to her own people. And let me tell you, I won't give you their names, but we still support that couple today. I hear stories like this, and there's this dilemma in my soul. What is it that makes a person do things like that? What is it that truly makes an outstanding follower of Jesus? And why is there, seem, there seems to be this gap between what I think I should be and what I am? What is it really that makes a great follower of Jesus? So we're going to try and do is answer some of that question today. Do you feel that tension? As, am I crazy? Am I the only one whose faith is shaken by my lack of faith? <laughs> so in order to do this, we're going to look at the life of Paul in the book of Philippians. So if you want to join me, we're going to look at the book of Philippians chapter 3. It's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. You can open up there or turn your app there. and It's kind of a different experience preaching since I haven't preached in a little while. And now I see this glow from iPads and iPhones on people's faces. It's different, you know. The swipe of fingers across the screen instead of the turning of pages. But that's okay. Philippians. It's uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And if you, um, if you don't have it, a uh, Bible there or something, I'll just go ahead and give you a third option throw it up on the screen for you. Um, this book was written by Paul, like I said, and one of his goals in this book was to give, he was writing a letter to the, to the Philippian church, and he wanted to give several examples of outstanding faith that they were supposed to follow. In the book, in the chapter prior to the one we're in, he'd already given three examples. One example was Jesus himself, so I, I, I hope that Jesus was a pretty good example of Jesus, but... He then gave two other examples, and now in chapter 3, he begins to look at his own life as an example to follow. Before you think that sounds kind of arrogant, uh, hang in there. You'll see pretty soon why it wasn't arrogance. But really, ultimately, if, if he's given these examples of great faith, then his agenda is the same as our question. 
What is it? What is it really that makes an amazing follower of Jesus? And we read, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. So let's take a quick time out. I had to do that just so that all you who've been sitting under Ryan's preaching would feel at home. Um, <laughs> this Ryan takes times out, timeouts in the middle of the passage. Uh, but this is significant. The first thing he says is, I've already taught this before. I've taught this, and it's okay. I'm going to teach it again. And I, I guess if he had enough ink, he probably would have said, and I'm going to teach it again after that. And you'll see in other letters that Paul wrote, he teaches the same truths. Great teachers reiterate and use repetition to communicate the most important ideas. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Then he goes on. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteous, righteousness under the law, blameless. <laughs> But whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul shares a little bit of his own story as an example to us. What was it that made Paul who he was? The first thing I see here is that great Jesus followers trade self-confidence for God-confidence. Great Jesus followers trade self-confidence for God-confidence. They, they put their confidence in Jesus, not in themselves. Now, there's something kind of ironic about hearing this from Paul, of all people. Because, you see, Paul was kind of like this spiritual super stud. He was like this rock star of the spiritual world in his day. Everything about his life set him on a path towards spiritual success, towards holiness, towards righteousness. You've heard of the term, a man's man. Well, Paul was a Hebrew's Hebrew. His whole life set him on that path. Even things that he had no control over. I mean, look at it. He said, he said I'll back it up here if you want to look at it. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That was the exact day that the law commanded that he be circumcised. And that may sound weird to us, but circumcision was like a badge, an identity badge that he was a part of the people of God. It was, it was like this connection to this promise that God had made to this amazing people. And his parents had followed through, 
and had followed the law, and he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was born to the nation of Israel. I mean, he could have born, been born to any nationality, but no, he was born into the nation that God had blessed, that God had identified, that he would bring his Messiah through, and that was the nation he was born into. He was born into a highly honored tribe in the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was descendants from uh, the favorite son of Jacob, their great forefather, their great, one of their great founders, Jacob, had a son, and one of his favorite son was Benjamin. And so there was this, there was this little bit of extra clout that he, he didn't really have anything to do with, but it, he was a little bit better, kind of like people who were born into the family of Broncos fans or something, you know, or just a little bit better than other people, you know. He was 100% Hebrew through and through. Both his parents were completely Jews. And all of those things were things he had nothing to do with. But he confirmed his potential when he became a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most resilient and and passionate God followers out there in his day. They were so committed, they made their whole lives about following God and about knowing and understanding his word. So much so that they memorized the Bible. The Bible that they had that day. And as if that wasn't enough, he goes one step further. It's it's not just enough for him to memorize scripture and to know the truth. He wanted to stand up for the truth. And so he went out on campaigns to fight people who were teaching things he thought was false. This guy was ferociously committed to God. There was none like him. He was on a path towards spiritual superstardom. But, but, but. It's as if in this passage, he says, yeah, 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 yeah. All that stuff, loss. Loss. All that stuff was loss. It was, it was detrimental to me. What he's saying is, I thought I had it. I thought I was right on target. But then one day, Jesus showed up, and he changed everything for me. Everything for me. What is it about Jesus that changed everything for Paul? I mean, the language he's using here. It's very, very wide-sweeping. It's like all-inclusive. Well, everything about Jesus. The fact that Jesus is who he said he was changed everything for Paul. And what's fascinating most about this statement from Paul is that he doesn't just say, um, those things were good, and I memorized the Bible, and I knew all my Bible verses, and I tried to live a holy life, and then I met Jesus, and it all just kind of came together, and then I was ready to really serve God. No, he says, all that stuff was actually loss. It wasn't neutral. It was detrimental. It was loss. That's the, what that word means. The language he's using here is that of a ledger sheet. Several years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of purchasing our first home. As you guys know, those of you who've made a big purchase like that, you know that there's quite a bit of paperwork involved. And essentially, 90% of that paperwork is producing evidence your assets and your liabilities that prove to the bank that you're going to make payments on this place. And depending on the evidence that you can produce, you get a better rate or a worse rate or whatever, essentially what you're doing is you're putting together a packet of assets and liabilities. We do this all the time. We do this naturally in our heads. We, we weigh the pros and the cons, and that's exactly what's going on here. Like when you go to a store and you, you're shopping for a new table or something, you walk into the store and you go wow, that is a great price for that. I mean, it's a really great, it looks ridiculous. 
and it probably won't even support the weight of a cup of coffee, but it's a great price. I mean, we do this all the time, this weighing of pros and cons. That's exactly what he's doing here in this text. But what's interesting is the list that he's putting into the cons column, the the liabilities column, seem like good things. In our day and age, it might be a list like this. Your missions trip in high school. Your Christian upbringing, your wonderful church, the passages of scripture you have memorized. Loss. Detrimental. Liability. What is it about those things that's lost? I mean, look at it here again. That's exactly what he's saying. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. My parents took care of the circumcision thing. They took care of, I was part of this great tribe of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, fairies, see, as to the zeal, persecuted the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But count them as loss. So I heard this comedian the other day um, kind of poking fun at the self-esteem movement. He was saying something along the lines of, you know, when I was a kid, I had to actually win something to get a trophy. Nowadays, they just pass out a trophy for participation. And it was funny, and he goes on and did this whole bit about the self-esteem movement. You know, what, what happens to this kid if uh, he tries to try out for the, the, the big leagues and, and they tell him he can't play because he's not good? What, what happens then? And it was funny. Um, and he's poking fun at that self-esteem movement. But there is something that's true and the reason that our culture has shifted and, and focuses on self-esteem and, and self-confidence is because there's something true about that. What you think of yourself tends to become reality. People with great self-control tend to function better, or self-confidence tend to function better in the world. That's why psychologists focus on it. So I think one of the only problems with a self-esteem movement or a self-confidence idea. Maybe the only problem with it is what happens when little Johnny lets himself down? What happens when your whole world is built on this infrastructure of self-confidence and then you let yourself down? It's like a house of cards. It all just tumbles down. Great Jesus followers trade self-confidence for God-confidence because it's so much better. So much better. God will never fail. And what he says about you is always true, backed up by infinite power and unfathomable love. If you've ever met a great saint, someone with, uh, who's been walking with God for a long time, they have this humble powerful presence of confidence. That is God confidence. They're unshakable because their identity is rooted in an unshakable God. So the question is, what do you have confidence today in? What is it that you have confidence in? And I'm going to ask you to actually write that down. If you have a bulletin, I I didn't give you something to write on other than that, and there's a pen in in the seat in front of you, go ahead and write down that list. What is it that you have confidence in, that you're, you're pretty good at? 
What, what, what thing do you have that's valuable to this world? Maybe make a mental list of that. Or write that list down. Maybe, uh, maybe the idea of doing this exercise is one of the more painful things that you could imagine because you can't think of anything. I'm not valuable to the world. I don't have much to offer. If that's you, the good news today is you're valuable because of what Jesus thinks about you. You're as valuable as he declares you to be. And he thinks you're valuable enough to die to make a way that you might have a relationship with him. For the rest of us, that list, that list you put in your head or in your bulletin or whatever it is, something you're good at, something you find confidence in, might be the biggest threat to you becoming a great Jesus follower. Isn't that weird? That list might be the biggest threat to you becoming a truly great Jesus follower. And you might ask yourself, come on, Aaron, how are these things bad? How are these things negative? Some of these things are good. The, reasons they can be, the reason they can be liabilities is because they distract you from your need for Jesus. And they distract you from something so much better. If we begin to think that the target is being part of a good church... Or if we begin to think that the target is being an outstanding parent or having a good marriage or having our lives put together, then we're aiming at the wrong target. We're aiming at the wrong target. The target is complete perfection. Sorry, that's the target. The target is complete and utter perfection. If you can't reach that, like Narup read earlier, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, you don't even have a shot. And the only way to get that type of of righteousness is from Jesus. Nerup read it earlier as we were worshiping together. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, for our sake he made him, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the very righteousness of God. The target is Jesus. It always has been and it always will be. Paul thought he was doing fine because he was checking off all the spiritual good things. And the reason those spiritual good things were actually negative to him is because they blinded him to the fact that he needed way more. He needed Jesus. So, your great Jesus follower, if you trade self-confidence for God-confidence, and let me tell you, it's so much better when you remember it. So what else makes a great Jesus follower? Great Jesus followers value knowing Jesus over knowing anything else. Great Jesus followers value knowing Christ, knowing Jesus as a person more than any other knowledge. Before Paul became a follower of Jesus, he was a guy who went around and persecuted Christians because he thought they were teaching heresy. But when Jesus showed up in his life, everything changed. He lost everything because of that moment. Jesus knocks him off his donkey and says, hey, Paul, I'm real. I'm the guy that you are supposed to be pursuing. And Paul's life was flipped 
completely upside down because of that. He became the persecuted. He became the helpless. He became the whipped. He became the imprisoned. He became one who says, I know Jesus. And why would he do that? Why would he trade a position of power, authority, and prestige for a position of lowliness, humility, persecution, stonings? It's because knowing Jesus was more valuable than all those things. So it's kind of funny. That it just kind of worked out this way that... Um, this illustration lands. My, my father-in-law is here, and I have a, a little story to tell you to illustrate this idea. And So I'm just brown-nosing a little bit, so we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, before, we got, before I got married to my wife, Allison, she wanted to uh, contribute to our future marriage by purchasing a car with cash, a reliable car with cash. Now, buying a car with my wife is very special because of her dad. Her dad carries a little bit of clout in the auto world. You know, just a few years prior to this occasion, he'd been awarded top service manager in all of Auto Nation. People knew him. And so we went to him and we asked for some recommendation. Where should we go? Who should we talk to? How do we go about doing this? And he said, okay, uh, I want you to go down to this Toyota dealership and uh, go and ask for, and we'll just call him Tom. So we did. We went to this car dealership. We showed up and we said, um, hi, uh, yeah, we're here to shop for a car and uh, we're supposed to see Tom. The receptionist kind of looked me up and down and said, do you have an appointment? And I was like, uh, no, I, Steve Code told me to just ask for Tom. Oh, Steve Code. Okay, just a moment. And she took off and she went around the corner and she went and talked to the store owner or manager, Tom. Tom sent two sales guys just a moment later around, and they, they approached us. Hey, Allison, you're, you're um, Steve Code's daughter, and Aaron, nice to meet you. We heard about you. We heard you're coming. This is great. We're going to find you a great car. What are you looking for? What's your price range? And they just, they just lavished service upon us. They would dr- go out and literally run around in the hot Colorado sun and find a car and drive it up for us and then park it in the front of the building while we're standing in the air conditioning. And then they would describe the car and see if it fit our needs. And, and then after that, they went to the back and they printed off the entire history of this car, every problem they'd found with it when they took it in. And they just printed it off and handed it to me. And I was like, wow, huh, this is great. What's fascinating about that whole experience was it had nothing to do with me. I got so much better treatment and I didn't know anything more. I didn't have more cash in my wallet. I didn't, I just knew a guy. I knew a guy. And that's exactly what was going on here. And by the way, if I ever shop for a car at an AutoNation uh, dealership again, I'm not going to be showing up with my name. <laughs> I'm going to be showing up with a big poster of Steve Code. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that. That's my name that I use, okay? <laughs> What's fascinating about this is it had nothing to do with me. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. What Paul's saying here is, in, is it's far better for him to know a guy. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing a guy. 
For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them all as complete rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So who do you know? Who do you know? Are you still walking around the Toyota dealership of heaven with a sign with your name on it? Coming to church, reading your Bible, praying, being around Christians, they can either be in your assets column or in your liabilities column. If they're, in your, if they're gonna be in your liabilities column, you think that they're the target. If you want them to be in your assets column, they are means by which you know a guy. Wow, so thus far, all of my points have been Jesus. It's almost like this Christianity thing has something to do with him. I'll give you one more. Great Jesus followers begin to see themselves like Jesus sees them. When you embrace what Jesus did for you, he actually makes you clean. He actually makes you righteous. When you embrace what Jesus did for you, now great Jesus followers begin to believe what the Bible says about them, that they were sinners, that Christ died for them, and therefore they're clean. And when you start to believe that, way down deep, Ryan says it all the time, when, when the gospel gets in you so deep, it's got to get out of you. When you start to believe that you have the righteousness of Christ, you start to look like it. In these few short words, Paul has flipped drastically. In the beginning, he's laying out his credentials and all the things that made him a spiritual superstar. And now he says, I don't want anything but Jesus' righteousness. I think as he's listing his resume, he imagines what it would be like to hand that resume to God at the judgment seat or to hand the righteousness of Jesus on his behalf to God. And he thinks, oh, I don't want my own righteousness. I want Jesus. He says it right there in verse nine. I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Maybe you think, amen. Yeah, me too. I want to be found with the righteousness of Christ. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. But how often do we present our own righteousness to God? In fact, maybe one of the reasons you're here today is because you screwed up this week. I'm in church, God. We're good? We good? Or, I don't know about you, and I'll just kind of open up my soul for you. Have you ever had a time when you're like, I really need to be good this month? I really need to be really good. I need to pray lots. I need to make sure I don't miss my devotions because I really need that job. Or I really want her to like me. Or I, whatever it is, and you feel like if I'm just really good, maybe God's going to throw me a bone. (laughs) I might just me. All right, fine. All right. That is presenting our own righteousness before God. That is it. Great Jesus followers seek to be found with Jesus' righteousness. You know, this passage is really, really important to me, and I gotta move quickly here, but this passage is really important to me because Paul's life is so similar to mine. 
I was born into a Christian family. Not any Christian family, a missionary Christian family. We lived in West Africa, or not East Africa. Yeah, they're in West Africa now. We lived in East Africa. I watched them love and serve and translate the gospel to people's hearts and their lives. I watched them sacrificially love and care for people. They taught me the Bible. I grew up knowing all the Bible verses and all the Bible answers. And when, when we left the field, I went to youth group and I became a leader in the youth group right away. And I was leading worship at the age of 16. And after that, I went to Bible college. And after, after that Bible college, I went to another Bible college, to Moody Bible Institute. And I, I studied hard. I sought out an amazing godly woman to marry. I had all these high hopes for what I was going to be as a Christian. I was trying to go through this list. And let me say a lot of that. You know, God used it. God, yeah, God, God's redeemed a lot of that, but a huge percentage of that had no value to me. I remember I was walking down a path, leaving Moody from a class one time, and I was going through my spiritual checklist. Have a good marriage. Um, read my Bible. Study well. Work really hard. And it just, this little voice popped in my head, Aaron, what happens if you finish your list? What happens if the entire list is checked and you don't know me any better? I, I, I guess there's no value in any of this if it's not so that I might enjoy Jesus. So what is it that truly makes a great Jesus follower? You guessed it. It's the Christ factor. It's Jesus. That's it. That's it. That's all there is to it. It's Jesus. What sets one Christian apart from another, it was ultimately their ability to seek and savor their Savior. So if you're that skeptical non-church person, have you ever actually wrestled with Jesus? Yeah, yeah, Christians don't always live up to the standard that you expect them to. You know why? They're no better than you. They just know a guy. They just know a guy. And the more they believe that they know that guy, and the more they trust in that guy, they start to look more like him, yes. Christian, if your faith is shaken because you tried, you tried to be an outstanding Christian and it didn't quite work or... Whatever it may be, maybe it's because you're measuring yourself rather than Christ. So what are we supposed to do with this today? I want you to seek and savor Jesus. Why do, we, why do preachers tell you to read your Bible, pray, spend time with other pe- like-minded people? It's because they want you to see Jesus. They want you to be reminded over and over again, like Paul said in this passage, to write these same things to you is no trouble to me. It is safe for you. Repeat it over and over again. Hear this. The righteousness is a tool that God uses to measure us, to see if we fit the standard. Righteousness is the tool that God uses to determine whether we can be in his presence. It's not an arbitrary thing. He didn't just make it up. It's who he is. He is so holy, he has to have people in that, live to that standard. It's like that yardstick at the fair that you would stand up against to see if you could ride the big kid rides. 
The only difference is the yardstick of heaven extends beyond the galaxies. Your righteousness is like a sand flea to a skyscraper. And if only someone might stand on your behalf. Who better than the one that holds the universe in his hands? Who better? Imagine if every Christian started to believe what Jesus already did. It'd be crazy. It'd be crazy. We'd start having God confidence. God's righteousness, God's love, God's mercy, God's beauty, and all of it would be for his glory and our good. Let's just believe it's all about him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for redeeming us, for living the life that we couldn't so that we might enjoy your presence. Thank you for standing on our behalf. We love you. Amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.